Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our podcast series. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Everyone well? Nice and cool? Um, Okay. I want to start by doing an important um, recognition of country. So I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for joining us today. Just to add to the um, acknowledgement, um, I'm from Wurundjeri country um, in Nam in Melbourne, and just to, I think, contextualise an acknowledgement of country, it really is about um, respect, it's about a dialogue, it's about reciprocity. So we're here to have a lovely conversation around issues that are important to us. And of course, we welcome you um, being part of that discussion. So I want to thank each of you for, for coming here this morning. It's, it's, it's a great crowd. We, we thought we'd get a great crowd because we have such wonderful people. Um, so I want to welcome the audience. I'm going to introduce our three guests, but rather than read the um, formal biographies which are in your program, um, I'm going to get each of the speakers after I introduce them by name to also introduce themselves. So they might want to add to those biographies or they might want to shorten them, depends what they've done. Um, so sitting next to me is Annie Tafiu. Um, sitting next to Annie is um, Evelyn Araluan, the current holder of the Stella Prize. <laughs> and sitting across here is Jazz Money. And the only thing I'll say before I get them to introduce themselves, just think of the poetry in each of those names. It's absolutely amazing. They, they're not only poets, their parents, for some reason, knew to give them the names <laughs> that are poetic, so they chose their future career for them. <laughs> so we'll start with you, Annie. Tell Thanks. everyone about yourself. Okay. Um, morning. Thank you so much for um, coming on in. Um, as Tony said, I'm Annie, but my parents actually named me Anne-Marie, so... I just made it easier for everyone to just call me Annie, Annie to few. Um, I also want to acknowledge um, we're gathered on beautiful Gadigal lands. Um, I'm um, an Australian Māori. Um, I have ancestral ties. My whakapapa belongs to the Hokianga, which is, if anyone's been to Aotearoa, it's in the North Island. Um, keep going up, 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 and then go a bit further. <laughs> um, so that's where all my whānau are. And I'm just a bit blown away to be on this stage beside these incredible writers. So, yeah, kia ora. Jingiwala, I'm Evelyn. Um, and yes, my parents did name me well. I uh, got the best name out of all of my siblings. Can I just say that? Um, I'm also very grateful to be a guest here on Gadigal Country and also do want to pay my respects additionally to um, the Redfern Waterloo Aboriginal community and to their continued sovereignty, political, um, uh, you know, political power and force and that history in this space. Um, yeah, I'm a writer, poet, academic, editor, Pisces... <laughs> <laughs> Um, recently tried to do a birth chart and it said something about rising moons and suns and then I just gave up. So I don't have any further information for you beyond <laughs> that. Um, and, yeah, oh, and I'm a Bundjalung woman, born and raised in Western Sydney, if anyone... Woo. Yeah, fair cop, it's Sydney Writers <laughs> Festival, OK. Um, all right, well, Western Sydney represent, nonetheless. Um, yeah, so it's nice to be 
back in New South Wales, back in uh, your Darug country. Hello. Yuridimurangindaga. Um, my name is Jazz. Um, that is my, the name that my parents gave me. It often comes up. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if they were aiming for poet or just like far out Fruit Loop. But they got something. <laughs> um, I'm a Wiradjuri person from central south New South Wales, or now known as New South Wales, um, with responsibilities to the Murrumbidgee River. But I live now on beautiful Gadigal country just down the road. Um, and, yeah, I am similarly stoked to be on the stage with these delightful people. Uh, the premise under which I am invited here, I think, is because I write poetry <laughs> um, and sometimes make art from that poetry, um, but I am also trained as a filmmaker and sometimes do that as well. Yeah, I think that's the yarn. <laughs> that, that's, that's very good. Thank you. So I was, um, I was asked um, by Michael Williams, the director of the festival, to be a, a curator, which is a, a glorified term, could I organise some stuff? <laughs> and um, I decided to organise two panels. And one of the reasons that I brought these three wonderful people um, together was that, as well as writing occasionally, um, my last professional job as an academic was working as a researcher in climate change and, and climate justice. And while we're not here specifically to talk on that topic, one of the abiding interests that I've had is the way that First Nations people write and create work around country, around place. And I think that when we're thinking of a need to pay greater respect to country and to the planet more generally, my, my firm belief is we need to, to concentrate on what our artists are doing and how our artists are engaging with country. So um, each of these people in, in various ways do that in their work. Um, we, we did tie weaving into the title for several um, reasons. One is that Jazz has got a question called how to make a basket. I think, well, that's, that's a good theme. And Annie <laughs> is, a, is a serious weaver. The rest of us... Hardcore we're, we're, serious. Yeah, we're, we're not so serious weavers. But, in fact, I do want to talk really about weaving both physically as an act, and I love the way that Annie, her work, talks about the tactile nature of weaving and its relationship to place, but also to look at it, we might call it symbolically, spiritually, we might call it um, metaphorically, to look at um, the way that we weave words and language with, with fibre, the fibre of language as well. And Jazz and I did an event last night at Powerhouse, and yeah, one of the things that Jazz brought up is the relationship yeah, between trees and paper. Paper is, is something that we use all the time. Um, I'm going to start with one of those general questions that you either really know how to riff off or you go, what sort of a question <laughs> is that? That's such an esoteric question. And he told me not to get academic, so I'm going to start with an academic question. Oh. <laughs> um, no, there's a wonderful quote in um, one of Annie's essays on weaving called Weaving as Resistance, which is a beautiful essay. She writes, the most important thing is intention. The work has been created out of an urgency of, an ex of expression. What has needed to be said has been said. So... I want to just focus on the end of that. What has needed to be said has been said. I'd like each of you to think about and to speak to the audience about what is it that you want your work to say in relationship particularly to your understanding of place and identity. So what has been said in your work or what would you like your work to say? And since the quote belongs to you, Annie, we'll start with you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, um, what does an object say and what does a poem say? And you, you want the work to speak for yourself, don't you? And what's interesting particularly about weaving is that it's not necessarily you speaking, you're not doing the speaking, um, nature is doing the speaking, Mother Earth is doing the speaking, Papa Tuanuku is doing the speaking. So the tree from which the fibre has come from is really speaking. Um, so when someone, for example, holds a basket that I've made, the transference of energy is around that fibre, that tree. So it's really letting the object speak rather than me speak. I really wish I hadn't had to go first. <laughs> <laughs> that was beautiful, though. It's oh, a beautiful way. Evelyn? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure... I, I think I deliberately engage with a kind of research and academic and political practice as well um, in my work. Like, there are some poems where I really do feel like it's as much as possible about focusing on the most direct cultural, spiritual relationship between myself, language and country. But um, And I admire work that does that really intimately. But I'm also interested in the archive and I'm also interested in textual histories and contexts and how they sometimes infiltrate and interfere with those sorts of relationships. So I'm also... Like, I like writing about other art and trying to find creative and often deconstructive ways of speaking around to, through um, and under um, some of the other claims of that. So, like, often I really actively imagine my poetry as a kind of paratextual or annotation to, um, you know, broader context, like, you know, drop it. Like, I imagine this is an annotation to Australian literature from some, like, really ungrateful, bratty yeah. editor who's just very upset about the entire premise of, of the job that they're working on at the time. I want to come back to that because I've got a question coming up because I actually think there's a relationship between archival work of gathering and mm. literally the gathering yeah. for, for weaving. Oh, definitely is. Yeah. Mm. So I'm gonna, and I'm going to come to that. So, Jez, what do you want to say or what has been said in your work? Um, I think the reason... I, I love both of your answers, um, but I think the reason that I started writing was because I felt like I couldn't comprehend the complexity of the world and I found that writing was a way that kind of respected that. <laughs> That, you could, that I could put things on the page and they didn't need to be resolved um, and they could reflect the sort of madness of the world around and that that was okay and that's kind of what I like from poetry is that it doesn't seek neat answers a lot of mm -hmm. the time. It seeks to hold many things simultaneously and I, I think that's um, <laughs> very much how I feel about operating in the world, that there are so many contradictory things that we all hold within ourselves and we have to operate and I think possibly as well, like as First Nations people living in this colonial society, as like a queer person living in a society that is not necessarily kind to that, like you have to be kind of oscillating constantly and, and I find poetry brings me calmness in that and I hope that it <laughs> maybe doesn't offer calmness but that it makes things okay for a reader, that you can kind of sit in that complexity and, and that it is, it is safe to be all these um, mad things. I think also, kind of picking up on what you were saying, um, Evie, that 
there's something about the stories that we tell that I'm really, really interested in. And I, in my writing, I'm really... Um, I find thinking about narrative and thinking about the ways that things have been inscribed and reinscribed uh, fascinating. And I like to write into that space as well and try to, you know, add more complexity to the, to the accepted dialogue or to these, these narratives that we inherit. Okay. That, now, I've got a two-part question. I'll, I'll stay with you, Jazz, because you talk about the stories we tell. But So I've got two questions. The first one, and it's relative to one of the reasons I put the panel together, to what extent, if any, um, does the work or the making that you're doing respond to the climate crisis or the damage being done to First Nations country? So do you feel that your work is in, on occasion wanting to respond to this, this crisis? Yes. Well, I think that's the reality of the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that the writing I do is in response to my experience of operating in the world. In saying that, I don't think this collection of poetry is doing anything for the climate crisis. I mm -hmm. think it's um, printed on paper, made from trees, um, distributed in ways that are not sound, um, because that's the nature of every element of the distribution of our capitalist society. But if it can offer insight or if it can offer motivation or if it can offer something rich for a reader or comfort for a reader because I am so despairing when I think about <laughs> when I think about the world and that is in my writing but I personally try to lean into a place of uh, motivation like I hope that the it's not utterly despairing um, but yeah I think the climate crisis is the the lived reality of this moment and has been since, you know, uh, the tall ships landed here, that, that this has been a place of climate crisis. I mean, we're, we're on a place where, until very recently, was... This was a hill. Carriage Works is, was sandblasted. There was a hill right here. We're meant to be under the ground. Like, that is massive, massive climate change, and we're, we're sitting here right now within it. Ev? Yeah, I kind of, I do follow, I follow the logic of thinking about the function of poetry and the function of the sort of the distribution of creative work and objects of art in, in like a very practical material way. I, I do follow that. Um, but I also kind of think, and, and, and you know, and, and I write, I've got poems about climate change and drop bear. I think every industry needs to be orientated towards very serious discussions about complicity about action, about the possibility of any kind of um, potential intervention. Um, and, you know, it's, there's definitely some incredible artists out there who are really making work that is trying to, as much as possible, remain kind of like um, as, as, as net zero, as carbon zero as possible. So I, I think we can think about it in that way, but I was just having a yarn with um, uh, a, a woman before doing signings who was talking about her work and research um, in in climate change as a as a I think she was she's a scientist and she's <laughs> like the science the science failed she said the science failed and we were, we failed to communicate it that was the issue that you know um, you know thirty years ago this is what we were doing and we just weren't able to tell people about it and looking at 
you know, looking at all of the kind of the theory of organising and and mm. how you become better activists, mm. the key is bridging the, that gap between an understanding of what's going on and actual agency and actual action. And the key to that, all of the research says that the key to that is passion and people becoming inspired and people becoming emotive. That needs to be mm. the pull on it. And if, um, if we in the poetic space can do anything, um, you know, we can make people feel and that, that, like, that's a responsibility, it's something. Um, so I'm not sure if taking poetry out of its conventional distribution would change, would, would make, you know, like I, I think it's a greater good than it is a harm at this stage. And I say that carefully, I say that as a Marxist, I say that as, you know, like, um, you know, with sensitivity to the realities of, of distribution, but I'm, I do think it's a better thing to do than not to do, mm -hmm. probably, at this time, <laughs> yeah. I think. And Annie? Yeah, um, wow, they're amazing answers. I just keep thinking about um, um, Finna, who was my um, great aunt, Finna Cooper, and mm -hmm. she was, um, she really had that motivation and led people and, and like you said, had that inspiration and m m catapulted people, motivated people to get on the streets and lead this massive land land march over in um, New Zealand. And there's a feature just being made on... Yeah. 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 And I just think about, and that whole sense of looking backwards to look forwards to our future, you know, our futures in our past. And, yeah, and how you were saying, you know, Evie, how you were saying, you know, the conventional sense of writing poetry. And we were just talking backstage about I'm part of a collective that's removing ourselves from this conventional poetry world. We're doing things independently. But will that shine a light on climate change? I don't know. Mm. Um, but there's also something to be said about make, witnessing and making testimony. Absolutely. And, like, so I often think about, like, what would happen if, like, you know, as is a, a horrifying possibility, like, we were all wiped out by some disease or something like that. Um, and, <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'm like, what would be left behind? Um, and then thinking about, like, the, that satellite that they sent out, Voyager or whatever. Mm. You know, and it's got a recording of um, uh, Blind Willie Johnson... Um, singing uh, Dark is the Night or something like that. And, like, how powerful it is that this guy who lived under the most sort of brutal and horrible of conditions and had this utterly terrible life, you know, his work is now out there as, like, a relic, as an artefact. It's, it's, it is sort of a cry for help, but it might end up being a fossil. We're just going to have to find out and see what happens. And if that's all we've got left to do... So we get really bleak. There's somebody in here with a baby as well, and I'm like, I do not want them to start thinking about the, the, the sadness and grief of possible climate stuff. Let's talk about something else. Tony, what have you been reading lately? No, no. We will in the moment, but I, I want to stick with it for a moment because the very tone that you ended with, and I told... I, I did ask Ev if she would be nice. Um, the I tone you ended no. with, that, this, is, this goes to my point because the second part of this question... It's about responsibility and having yeah. to do the heavy lifting. Yeah. So if I could just segue and come so back. True. One of my favourite film directors, Ivan Sen, mm. in several of his films, there's been an, an Aboriginal matriarch. Clouds. 
Road. And Dust, his short film. Oh, so dust. has a short yeah. film, Dust. There is an Aboriginal matriarch often in his films who has to bear the weight of mm. colonial violence because everyone else is suffering selective amnesia. Mm. So when I think about climate, we have a period of complete ignorance of First Nations science and viewpoints, and now everyone's asking Yeah, us. exactly. So my, and I'll go back to Jazz and come back in order. So there, it's sort of two things. One, how do you feel about that responsibility or do you want it? And do you feel that now there is so much heavy lifting that First Nations people, particularly women, are expected to do to, to solve this crisis or to get people out of the lethargy and that, that Ev is just displaying with her body language? They're very reclining seats. It's hard to I kind know, of... you can't. I have hip problems. I have to... um, I'm paraphrasing someone much smarter than me and if someone knows who it is, please say so. Um, because I drawing a blank, but um, I read someone recently, an Aboriginal woman, saying um, how frustrating it is people turning to Aboriginal knowledges and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledges to solve problems that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people didn't create and that our climate knowledge, our sciences, are not equipped for the disasters that mm. we are now expected to solve alone. Um, Was that the I'm not the problem? Was that from that... It reminds it's me of cute. Rosalie Kunis Monks, that's but that, exactly, she was yeah. Aunty, Aunty, um, uh, Aunty Rosalie Kunis Monks talking in um, on Q and A. You know, true. I am not it's the problem, but she yeah. was speci specifically attending to political problems there. But what it does remind me of, actually, um, is it could have been Alexis Wright. Yeah. Um, it sounds like a lot of her work, which is very deeply interested in um, in. in motivating people to care about climate and in um, kind of reimagining that relationship with country and understanding that country is pissed. Um, but well, it could that's it, right? It's listening. It's, yeah. a, it's a problem with listening. And, like, having gone through the last few years that we have had, like, it is an angry and harmed country that has fires like what we saw and floods like what we are living through right now. These are, these are the tangible voice of country and there is a colonial desire to believe that country doesn't have a voice and, and we are, it is roaring at the moment with frustration and we're still being <laughs> told that there's nothing that can be done and, and that, um, there, that we have no agency and I think uh, there is this, yeah, going back to what you, your original question, Tony, um, this expectation that it is our knowledges that can solve mm. this um, crisis Yes, yes, absolutely, like that's the place to begin, but there's so much more that needs to be done and the burden is not on the people who didn't start this. Mm. Yeah. I mean, um, Annie, when we're, we're, so we're at Brisbane Writers' Festival mm. last week, there was a massive Māori presence, wasn't yeah. there, and just remarkable work. I mean, one of the tensions that I felt and talking to people socially as well as attending panels is that you have this incredible, powerful sense of, of knowledge yeah. But people, when you're talking, is also these you know, social crises of continued mar marginalisation of yeah. Maori, particularly in urban areas. Completely, so and ma it, Maori it, people fill prisons. Hmm. That's you know, Maori people are upholding the prison industrial complex system. Like, so how do you, yeah. how so how then to finish this point? But how then do you feel about? Because there's a generosity in your work and, and an incredible generosity in the people that are at Brisbane. From, yeah. from your home country, yeah. how do you negotiate that sense of, of 
you know, expressing that generosity in an atmosphere where there's an colonial violence is still yeah, ever present. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think we probably feel that every day, don't we? Mm. Every, every day. Mm. And I think we're all really naturally generous people as well. Like, that's how we were raised. If you have something, you give it. <laughs> you don't smuggle it in closer. You share it. Mm. And um, I, I feel like that's just never going to leave me. Mm -hmm. um, that generosity of spirit's not just a random kind of, oh, yeah, today. It, it's part of who we are. Yeah. It's inevitable. Um, and that generosity of spirit has a really strong spine. There's strength in that. That's where you get your strength from, isn't it? Mm. Don't you feel stronger when you're generous? Ask them. Don't you? <laughs> I do. I definitely know that, like, my... Yeah, getting to a period of time in which I've worked out that, like, I, my anxiety disorder is not one that can be successfully medicated. Um, I've, I know, that was really annoying. Um, I've worked out that I can quite productively manage it by, like, if I go through, like, a really intense period of, like, an anxiety attack of, like, I'm a terrible person, everything that I've done is horrible, um, I don't deserve to exist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If I can do something productive for somebody else, that's a very, 100. that's a real, like, yeah. it does something to the little brainy boys and they're just yeah. like, okay, we can, we can do this, we can get through this. But it is, um, and I genuinely think that that's, like, a, a kind of an ancestral system of, like... It's there. That's ha what we're meant to be doing. We are meant to be caring yeah. and when we're isolated or alienated and you can't give care and yeah. you can't receive care, I think our bodies go a bit weird. I totally agree. And this is why I think I mentioned the prison systems. Mm. That's total isolation and alienation. Yeah. Mm. Um, you can't be cared for or give care in that space, which mm. is what makes us human, particularly when we're talking about Indigenous cultures. It 100. is what makes us human and we lose that humanness mm. in the prison industrial complex, yeah. in corporate institutions and commercialised contexts, they literally are about stripping... You know, this is what Foucault says, in a way. Um, about stripping what makes us human wow. and gives us agency and control over our own actions. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Foucault. Except so for being awful. He was awful. What, what, I'm, what I want to do now, um, so to prep a couple of people... I'm going to ask Annie a specific question about weaving, which again comes okay. out of one of her essays, Weaving Towards Myself. Oh, yeah. When Annie's responded to that question, I'm going to ask um, both of you to read a poem. So gather, gathering, mm -hmm. and listen. Um, and then I'm going to come back to you and you're going to read Hoodie. Okay? Well, you don't want me to read Smells Like Colonial now, Spirit. Well, uh, you're going to do what you're told now. Have you now. got it there? Yes, I do. <laughs> oh, okay. Here you go. But first of all, we're going to talk about weaving. Okay, great Beautiful. signposting. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Really so know it's ahead. Subtle. I'm OCD, <laughs> so I have to keep control of everything. Um, so in another one of Annie's essays, um, Weaving Towards Myself, which, again, is just so magical, as a lay person not understanding how, how people do this stuff, like you see all these you know, fibres just... You haven't had a go at it. You'd be able to do it. What are you even saying? Show I me your hands. I assure you I wouldn't be able to Show do it. Show me your hands. No. Maybe no. <laughs> oh, so, shots fired. So, Just thanks, Annie. Um, no, no, you, so, you could. So what would happen to me, I'd see all these fibres on the floor and I'd just get the vacuum cleaner out. And <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. But not, not Annie to few. So there's you this would. lovely quote. There is an artist 
order to it all. Yeah. Piles that make complete sense to me, but chaos to anyone. That's me. Hello. Chaos to anyone who might walk in. Yeah. So you say these piles make complete sense yep. to you. So I want to know what do you see when you see these piles? Yeah. How do you know s- what might happen well, with them or do you let the weaving yeah. create itself? Yeah, I do. And coming back to the question before, I see generosity, I see connection, I see solidarity, I see being true to myself, I see um, uh, just deep breathing, being able to have, uh, coming closer to myself. Um, I see a good time. (laughs) I just see good times. Like when you, you know how I'm sure, I feel like you're a, oh my God, I have to have that notebook to write this poem in. Do you ever go into a stationery store and go, I need that book? Yeah, I have a million stationery books. Well, even I have ones a, I don't, yeah. yeah, and I have a million, you know, pieces of inflorescence and raffia and all of my fibres and it all makes sense because I know that is what's going to bring me closer to myself. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah. So what (laughs) what I'm going to ask now, Ev and Jazz, if you could read your poems, because I want to, in a way, put a similar question to you about how you bring words together. So um, who wants to go first? You're you're already open. Okay. Well, it's the first one. Okay, all right. (laughs) This is the first poem in Drop Air, and just for a visual thing, it's all spread out. So that's why I read it slowly. Melissa just told me that I read it monotone, and it was lovely to hear her say that, but also, well, like, devastating. Um, <laughs> Melissa Lukashenko, she was just yeah, like, you read kind it? of monotonally. Um, so sorry about that. I don't know what to do with Can't this Can't wait news. to hear the range that you bring. Great. <laughs> Gather. Always to always. Slipping round the every. Light split to share the leaf the branch of skin, sky open, wide morning, moves long gaze. It gathers and it wanders at bare arms. It spills and me gather, bury, dry, burn, bread, cloth, the word for bead, the word for cloth. I gather branch, stretch of weed through creek, Weave of reed, cord of throat that hums. Gathered story to you, girl. Got something for you to swallow. All right. Um, This was Tony's request, which I'm interested by because it's not really tonally fitting with, I think, some of the stuff, but it's um, cause it's a bit of an angry one. Oh, I know where we're going. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, you know, that's, that's what I, I trust you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just for a moment of context... Oh, no, we might, dis- we might discuss it afterwards, hey? Oh, no. Well, a moment of context. Uh, this was commissioned um, for NADOC week a few years ago when the theme was always was, always will be, and I was um, really pissed off... <laughs> about everything, and I was pissed off at the people that commissioned the poem. Um, But I took their money and then I gave them an angry poem. (laughs) Um, And so it's called Listen. Country speaks, country sings, a heartbeat. Listen. Rivers have dried up, they are life and listen. Bush has been burnt, that's habitat, that's home, and this is urgent. 
listen. That silence speaks of all those kin and yet, listen. Do you hear the voices of ancestors? Do you hear the way the world was created? Do you listen? There are fists raised. There are voices singing. There are voices chanting. You must listen. No more deaths, no more police, no more foreign laws on sovereign soil. Listen. No more kids taken, no more families broken. Listen. This always was. This always will be. Do you understand? This always was, this always will be. Listen. Pay attention. Do you understand? Do you listen? Thank you. Excuse me. Oh, Sm- me. Yes. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Smells like colonial spirit. Oh, right, right. Oh. I'm sorry, I just give the title away. Can- <laughs> yeah. Um, so it smells like colonial spirit. Always a man next door, clearing his throat, clearing the land. He has a dream for extensions, a need to renovate, a desire to reshape his patch of turf, each metre controlled. Sharp edges, tall fences, brick pathways, raising his leg, marking his territory. First it is drill, then saw, then hammer, measurements defined as right as nails, corners hardened, the map is laid out. Bricks hold down the plans of each end and trucks deliver planks of foreign wood to make his man shed. I want to burn it down in the middle of the night and spread the ashes in the car park. <laughs> so, um, I've got, a, I've got a, a question for each of you on, on the poems. And the reason I wanted you to read that poem, Annie, is that there's a real tension in the way that you talk, write and create a basket and this because the thing that interests me, there's no, there seems to be in, in this poem, there's no intuition in what he's doing. It's completely about a really regimented order. It so, is. So thinking about, again, your weaving, while it, you know, and again, when you see one of your finished baskets, there's this beautiful symmetry, there seems to be what you're suggesting when you talk a lot about the tactile nature of weaving with your, with your fingers. Yeah. And again, it's about a trust in a, I don't know, an organic process. Yeah. It seems to be what you're... Your comment on colonialism here and colonialism's attack on land is yep. that it's a much more, almost a mathematical precision that is devoid of emotion. Or, yeah, so you got the, it in one. You got you it know? in one. That's it. That's my answer. Is that it? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's also, um, I mean, lived experience. We've all lived next door to the places that are being renovated and you just see them and they start with that and then that comes in and the <clears throat> going around and, the, <laughs> and then the map comes out and then the saw comes out and then the this and then the... It, it is. It's, it's methodical. Was the cocking of the leg me- metaphorical or actual? Uh, that was actual. Okay. Yeah. Don't piss in your own garden. No, yeah. So, but that was a wonderful sort of oppositional force there. And I suppose, um, Evelyn, the reason I, I wanted you to read the poem or one of the things that, that the, it interested me as much about 
writing practice and method. And I love your answer to this. I was really interested in, and I, I've read this book several times, you know, because I've had many, many chats have an, an eye on say, that Gather opens this collection. And I know that when I've done um, yeah, short story collections or poetry, and by the way, um, Annie Tafew is the editor of my poetry collection, oh. Whisper Songs. And so it's anything that you don't like, just blame Annie. <laughs> um, um, with Gather, if I could, I could just reread. You say, I gather branch, stretch of weed, through creek, weave of reed, cord of throat that hums. I mean, it seems straightforward to me, but I would like to ask the question, is it one, why you chose this poem to open the collection? And it seems it is a process of gathering language, gathering words, and thinking of some sort of weaving process in the way that Annie talks about those fibres sitting mm -hmm. on the floor in front of her. Well, um, there's a, you know, there's, there's a few reasons about why it opens the collection, and the first section is called Gather, um, which is really just like a sort of its own movement about um, taking stock of what is available, what resources. I think any project begins with you kind of looking around at what's there. And its relationship to weaving is actually quite explicit for me, but it's not one that's always, I think, people think about this part of the process. But um, I'm not a weaver, but I go out with my sister and I help her get the reeds and I help her prepare them. Mm. She's the weaver in the family. So I'm involved wow. in the process. I'm involved in going and, you know, picking it out and drying it and um, soaking it and that whole aspect of the experience. But that's just where my role is. Um, yeah. And so there's gestures to weaving in this, but really I think that the, the kind of the real logic behind it is situating myself and opening the collection with what to me feels like, you know, just this sort of this, this actual conversation about the responsibility that I feel like I'm... I'm giving myself for the collection. So this, this line, gathered story for you, girl, got something for you to swallow, is yeah. probably one of the few occasions that I try to step out of a subjectivity that I feel like I, you know, it's a bit cheeky of me, like, without stepping into a subjectivity, like a voice that, um, to me, feels as close as possible to what like ancestors would be saying and asking me to do, recognising what my abilities are. Well, I read, I write, I'm, I had the privilege of an education and the way that I designed this book to unfold was fulfilling the responsibilities to the knowledge that I've been given um, and taking up my own tasks to do that. And as the collection unfolds, you know, those tasks, I see them as deconstructing certain things so that the next person can come along and they can take what they need from that and keep those tools moving, you know? Like, I help my sister with gathering and preparing the reeds and then she takes that up and she makes the baskets and she makes everything that that is a part of that. And I, love I, that. I think it's something that, like, we don't spend enough time... Or, or will mob do? But, like, as a broader society, I don't think people, like, necessarily spend enough time actually honouring that there are some things that we are suited for and, like, in a family unit, you know? All of my siblings were so different and we each have different roles and I feel really comfortable with so what my role true, is. So true, knowing your role. Mm. On the marae, mm. knowing where you go. 
when you go straight to the kitchen and you do the dishes. Yeah. <laughs> or you make the cup. Or... And there's no, it's not that there's a lack of dignity in that. There oh, is no, a real dignity in where you're situated, dignity, yeah. what you're asked to do and mm. who that serves and how that fits into the broader space mm. because, you know, we all need the kitchen. You need the re- the weeds yeah. to gather. That's a, that, I mean, that's so... I mean, I know that there's a poem of yours that I particularly am a sucker for, Evelyn, but it's very much about the home. And I love that idea of you go to the kitchen. It's, it's weird because I, I love that aspect of the family that I go to the kitchen and I want to yeah. clean up. Yeah. I want people to relax. I, wanna, I actually love doing that part yeah, of the, the reciprocity of sharing. Now, Jazz, you've really um, intrigued me but also interested me because I love the comment on the poem and you talked about being angry and angry at those who commissioned it and angry at the world and maybe you woke up angry, I'm going to write this poem, listen. But to me, what was interesting, one, about reading it, there's this lovely, there's a call and response in this poem, there's a demand, um, there's again a rhythm and a a weave that flows through the poem because you're asking people to listen. But it's interesting because hearing the poem read and feeling the response from the audience, there is a demand in the poem, but it, to me it reads and sounds, it's a, it's a generous demand. So in other words, I think the audience responded with generosity because you are demanding justice, you are demanding that people listen, and you are demanding that you know, people hear what First Nations people have to say. So I'm interested in that maybe in the, your thought about the construction of the poem, of the anger, but I'd love to know how you feel about it now because, to me, if there's an anger in there, it's a really applied anger. It's a really energetic anger and it's one that it seems that people, I think, respond to rather than go, hey. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> well, they were glad to hear it. Thanks. Um, yeah, I guess the, the thing that I was angry at was... and all First Nations people who work in any sort of forward-facing thing know about the rush of demands that come in the three weeks before NAIDOC week. And um, it is frustrating. It's really frustrating that um, there's this... There's 52 weeks in the year and there's one where everyone has every fucking moment of time accounted for because of all these commitments that pop up from organisations that suddenly want to show, you know, it, Evie can pick this up with um, a reconciliation action plan poem. <laughs> but, um, so that's where it came from. I, I um, wanted to make the point that our voices are here every day, every moment, always have been, um, always will be. Again, to <laughs> um, pick up on something that Evelyn said last night at the gala, uh, always was, always will be, is both a promise and a threat. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> And That's how do you really feel about good. the poem now? Um, well, I actually... this I wrote this at a time where I didn't perform poetry mm-hmm. I, and a lot of the stuff in this book is not very good at, for performing and that one is satisfying to perform and so I do do it occasionally and that is um, m- has meant that I have sort of a changing relationship with it over time as it kind of has a mm-hmm. feedback with yeah. people. And um, actually when I was reading it just then I was thinking of my partner is here in the audience and I remember her dad heard me perform it once and afterwards he came up to me and he was like I could hear the ancestors <laughs> and it was so fucking cute mm. <laughs> and I was like I was so in for it um, and I was performing with my my dear friend who plays guitar and sometimes we perform together and, and Zeppelin like lays 
music underneath and it creates What an this, amazing musician. Yeah, Annie's seen it. It's, yeah. um, it's a fucking treat to yeah. do. Yeah, um, But yeah, so I guess I, I, if, if that piece has had feedback to me that implies that it, it's resonating yeah. um, and that makes it worthwhile. Yeah. Um, can, that baby is too quiet. Can we have the baby yeah, the again, bubba? please? <laughs> can, or pinch the bub yeah. or something. Tony so. um, loves babies. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's Granddad flex. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Professional grandfather. Absolutely. So could you please bring the baby down the front? Um, <laughs> I want to ask another question, and again, it's one of those ones that is either easy to answer or you think, what, what is he talking about? Mm. But it, again, um, it comes from one of Annie's essays. So I'll quote myself first, if that's okay. <laughs> so, your story of discovering fibres while out walking contains a spiritual element. And let me read this beautiful quote. I found the most wonderful gnarly pieces of fibre yep. laying under a tree. They were resting, waiting for me. So, as a writer, and writer and weaver, and writer as an artist, so I want to again ask a question of each of you. Um, when you think about something that's waiting for you, the discovery... So in relationship yep. to weaving or in relationship to both of you with your poetry, do you have that... I, I responded to this one more directly, even though, as you say, I don't have the hands of, of a... I have the hands of a boxer, by the yeah. way. Um, is that I understand that because when I'm out walking and I gather stuff or if I see something, I take a photo, I get my notebook out, I do actually feel it was waiting for me. Yeah. So it was waiting as if, make a poem out of me put me in a story as, like, it was there for me. So yeah. how does that work for you in relationship to both the, the, the weaving and the poetry? Yeah, this is... Um, last night I did a workshop um, while you were doing your amazing things and it was around weaving. And on my way driving in, um, I was going to have some inflorescence, which is the fibre I mainly use on these beautiful lands, which comes from the Bangalore palm. And I was driving in... Are there any weavers in the audience, by the way? The baby weaves. No, they're boxes. They're all boxes. <laughs> the baby weaves. <laughs> the babies of yeah, yeah. current weaver baby. Yeah. Um, I was going to sort of connect with any weavers, but we're not. Okay. Shy, um, shy weavers. <laughs> yeah, shy weaver. Um, it's a record name. Um, <laughs> I saw some inflorescence hanging out of a wheelie bin and I was like, crime. I just yeah. felt like that was a crime. Like, how can you do that? And so I do feel like... When I do see fibres or when I meet someone, I'm like, oh, I'm meant to meet you because I'm, I'm meant to write about this. Or yeah. I'm, I, I really am, um, I don't know, is your question based on, what's that word when you're meant to meet? Serendipity. Uh, serendipity. Is it around that? You ask the... Uh, is that what Tony's question's about? <laughs> I said serendipity. And, and can I also just say that, like, my dad's a little bit older than Tony, but, like, blackfellas of that child. generation, of that generation, um, uh, often, I think, talk about and have experienced this period of, of life where when you begin to see things in a broader lifetime context of, like, well, if I hadn't done this, I would have would never have had there. that. That would have never happened in this whole thing that I care about and this great for me or this whole thing that then became, yeah. you know, like it's, it's serendipity. And, like, that's something that I think actually... Um, uh, it's serendipity is getting... not the right word, though. Yeah, because one of... it's, it's, it's the right word in the Pakeha in a white sense. But do you mean something that's also faces? Well, yeah. I asked the question you should ask me. Um, <laughs> no, I, I suppose the it's part. Of, it is serendipitous in a way, but I suppose to 
to get real plain language, plain speak, and as Sean McAuliffe would say, <laughs> is that when I see something, I'm out running or walking, I see something, rather than me discover that, There's I feel no that, that It's made element, itself visible it's, to it's, you. It's, it's revealed itself. I'm Revelation? More, I'll finish in a minute. I'll Witness. Just go on. <laughs> it's like um, you're witnessing it. What? Let's just go through our favourite synonyms. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the remaining Can I time. I'm going to finish my sentence. It's as if that thing, that sound, yeah. that shape. That experience. It, it was waiting for me to put it into yeah. practice or to engage with it. Sorry? Destiny. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. And Destiny. they're not even getting paid. Um, <laughs> what about you, Jazz? I don't think I feel that way at all. I f- oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm, really, I'm really interested that you guys do because I maybe it's age feel like um, I guess sticking with the basket metaphor, this basket full of a million little bits, mm-hmm. and sometimes when I go to write, they sort of spill out in a very disordered way, and I couldn't have ever anticipated what would come through there. Mm. Um, I don't feel like. I operate in a world where, I, where the story reveals itself to me or the object sings out to me. I think um, probably I'm singing out to the object with desperation. <laughs> um, but I, I actually thought I, I might just tie that question briefly into... So my book is called How to Make a Basket, and that was not how to weave a basket, which so many people think it is called, and rightfully so. It's a better <laughs> sentence. Um, but it's not about weaving in the tangible sense. It's about the process of making any object, a poem or Mm -hmm. a basket, is about this massive accumulation of care and respect and and, um, interpersonal and interspecies relationality that you have to develop over a lifetime. Mm. And then something something precious like a basket or a poem might appear if you've done all the work beforehand. So I think that's... I think that's my relationship to the serendipity. <laughs> I, 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 no, I think it's a wonderful response because it does also relate to um, a, a comment from Evelyn in one of her poems, which I'm going to find in about ten minutes. So just, <laughs> just let me sort of add... because we've only moment. got five no, minutes to I'm go. gonna, I'm, I know that. I'm looking at the clock. I'm, <laughs> I'm OCD. Don't forget, we won't go over. Um, in one of Evelyn's poems, which is, the land knows what you are yet to fully discover. So mm-hmm. I like your comment because it's saying, I'm not talking about precision or, you know, finding no. something and then, OK, I can... I can mathematically put this into a certain shape because that, that lovely word you use is spilling over. There's still... Mm-hmm. And, and he talks about mistakes. You've got to be... Mm-hmm. Go with the mistakes. Go mm-hmm. with the um, spontaneity mm-hmm. of weaving and it will shape something. I think... So in that sense, I think the poem and the, the physical weave fit together. Yeah. We do only have um, four minutes and 27 seconds. <laughs> so I'll ask a question of each of you. If you look at the clock, it means you'll get one minute each and then I'll close. Um, <laughs> right. A final um, quote by um, Annie says, to weave is to actively participate in decolonisation. Mm-hmm. Weaving is one of the quietest forms of resistance. And I like quiet here as a, as a strength, quiet, quiet as a quality. So with one minute each, do you see your work as a form of resisting the, the um, impetus of colonisation? I feel that if... I'm not entirely sure if it is that and where I take a lot of my kind of um, inspiration about decolonisation 
is the work of Frantz Fanon. And if people are familiar, Frantz Fanon. You're such a nerd. Martinique. You dropped I'm so sorry. many names. I really want to <laughs> read this person's He's, work. Uh, he was an astonishing um, uh, Afro-Caribbean um, scholar, activist, doctor. Um, he was also like an active, <laughs> like he, he was in the Algerian resistance. He was, wow. yeah. Um, his version of decolonisation is absolutely uncompromising and emphasises the necessity of violence, which is why they just cut my microphone off. Um, and he's, he's, you know, what matters to the native subject is land and bread, and with those come dignity, and you don't get those without violence. So when I talk about decolonisation and I talk about my work in a decolonial context, um, you know, like, I, I this, this is linguistic work. There are... The funny thing about, like, me not having yet gotten much pushback from this book yet is clearly people haven't read at least one of the poems. Um, the one that uh, Jazz mentioned, Reconciliation Action Plan, there's a line in there that says, don't say Reconciliation Action Plan, say fuck the police. And I've just asked to be a spokesperson for the reconciliation. Anyway, it's a whole big thing. Um, <laughs> you really? But, yeah, <laughs> let's not talk about that. Um I view my work as making it harder for colonisers, for settlers to do things without question. Mm -hmm. And it, the, the, you know, um, recentering of these tropes and ideas is now more inconvenient for them by virtue of my work. That's how I view it. Anyway, read France Fanon. Wow, that's <laughs> amazing. Um, and she's just gone 25 seconds off. I'm sorry. Jazz. I'll be concise. Um, I think to add to the sort of idea of a very active, angry resistance, which I do think some of my writing has, mm -hmm. I also make a great deal of space for love and joy mm -hmm. and care. And I think those are acts of resistance that nourish yep. and mean that we are sovereign peoples in that entirety um, that is not always in dialogue with colony. It is also in dialogue with ourselves and in a loving community. And that is something that I hope my writing also contributes to. Yeah, it reminds me very much of Jack Charles talking about being a sovereign person is about responsibility and care, not about having to answer back from the gutter, as Jack would say. Yeah. And Nanny? Yeah, I just think um, love is radical. And I think the work that we should do should be radical and it should be anchored in aroha, in love and... Um, yeah. Which 50 goes, seconds. Sorry, go on. That's all. No, it, it reminded me of after Bell Hooks died, of rereading exactly Bell Hooks. Yep. And that wonderful combination of, of, of radical um, uh -huh. commentary, of, of legitimate anger and love, which is very much mm -hmm. in there. Okay. So just before we give the three people an unbelievably rousing applause, because they, have, they are absolutely fantastic and brilliant, just to let you know that... Um, Jasmani and Evelyn Araluen will be available to sign copies of their wonderful poetry books at the Festival Bookshop, which is in the main foyer of the Festival Hub in Bays 22 to 24, um, where you can also get food and drink, by the way, according to this. <laughs> okay. But um, I said at the outset I wanted to bring this, um, these three people together because I love their work and I respect their work, but I also, they're all great friends of mine and um, I've had a fantastic hour and I'm so glad to have shared this stage with these three remarkable First Nations women. women so. Such an honour. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.